Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking to Stefan Samaroth, who is a West Point graduate. He's Ranger qualified and who led an infantry platoon in Afghanistan. He also led cyber teams while he was in the U.S. Army. And he has also led several several uh, cybersecurity-related practices after leaving the Army. In fact, I think after leaving the Army, uh, Stefan uh, founded a uh, Rainier Cyber, a cybersecurity recruiter that matches cyber vets with tech jobs across the country. Um, and he later went to work for Stratacore and now works for Avant Communications. Talk about a lot of different things with Stefan. Before we do that, let's welcome him to Secure Talk. Stefan, how are you today? I'm doing very well. I'm very excited to be here, Mark. And, you know, as I as I've explored your podcast over time, you have a lot of heavy hitters that are on here. And and I'm really excited and honored to to be on that guest list. So I'm excited to be here and excited to to stand up. And I hope that what I bring today is something that can help your audience make their security better and, and go out and continue their journey. Well, thanks for the compliments. And, um, you know, looking at your background and some of the things that you've went through, I would call you or say that you're definitely a heavy hitter as well. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, uh, so so let's 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 start with your 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 military experience. Um, you you were in Afghanistan and you were leading a, a red team and and doing some work for to protect uh, or related to cybersecurity for the U.S. Army. Well, yeah. So. When I when I was in Afghanistan, I was at that point uh, still in the infantry. So I was applying cybersecurity on the you know boots on the sorry, I was applying cybersecurity, but from a boots on the ground perspective. So I was kind of that end client that utilized cybersecurity, and it wasn't until after I I got back and uh, went through some some injury recovery back here stateside that I. I threw my hat in the ring. The army was standing up their new cyber unit at that time. And I said, Hey, I did some of this before I was in the army. Do you think I could continue to do it in the army? And, uh, and they said, yes. So I was one of the army's first cyber officers and I got to go to, uh, to a couple different continents for incident response at various levels. And it was, it was at a time when cybersecurity, the branch itself for the army, was still very, very small. It was still very, very new. And uh, anytime that you have that new change, that that big growth pattern, I got to have some really cool impacts on the branch and write a lot of the defining doctrine that define how we as practitioners can influence the global security strategy. And a lot of that doctrine actually defines how the U.S. Army, um, other sister services, and even some of our partners go and defend national strategic assets all over the world. So it's it's been a lot of fun, a lot of interesting conversations, and um, a, a really challenging time to try to take early nascent frameworks that exist out there and apply them at the, both the, the strategic, operational, and tactical level and do so in a way that moves the needle for a wide variety of stakeholders. So it's it's been a lot of fun and a, a long journey. And uh, I hope that the work that I did while I was in the Army and the Cyber Force will continue to be of value for the people that come after me. Well, you know, you started off by saying that you 
had to adopt some kind of you know preventative or some type of security practices while you're in in the infantry and and that you know created an awareness of the importance of those kind of practices could you give some examples of of things that you know people who are in the military on the front lines should be aware of um just from a you know from a, a frontline kind of end user point of view yeah absolutely the i think one of the biggest things that that the military does right is it focuses oftentimes on resiliency of the organization and when we when we talk about that from being on the front lines that means that you know we have a lot of what we in cybersecurity call RBAC so role based access control and uh, on the front lines you have you have that same role based access control for the drivers in our our, our trucks for um, gunners that we might have for our medics but we also have and and really breed leaders for is when things go wrong and you you have to have a second person that can stand up and drive that new truck or tank or that second person that can backfill the medic in a in a mass casualty scenario so uh that's kind of one you know philosophical piece that i think the army does very very well but there's also a, a second piece of uh when when soldiers airmen marines uh all get to their unit they are in processed and they have to go through a very stringent access control for all of the computers that they use all the technology that they use um you know the enterprise environment that they use and yes that enterprise environment does absolutely mirror corporate environments very tightly and we're effectively training all of our our even our most junior people that they do have a role that they cannot extend or should not expand past that role unless absolutely required and then out you know as we move out of the uh, i'll say on base environment and out into the field environment the army has continued to shift and change how they talk about cybersecurity and especially the electronic warfare landscape so if you do happen to be out in in the field environment you know maybe in the desert in california somewhere and you decide to turn your phone on and hop on instagram how would an adversary see that yes they could see it strategically through a post if they happen to be watching you but also the uh electromagnetic flags of you turning your phone on and releasing a signal and how can that impact you? So the Army's continued to really drive training across its entire, we'll say, user base to understand what are the impacts? How can an adversary utilize those against you for their gain? And how can you utilize that for your gain internally? And it's been um, fun to watch. It's been a, an interesting uh, maturity process through that of getting especially traditional non-technical commanders to to grasp from the defensive and offensive landscape and then once they do get it and you see that light turn on then you watch change happen organizationally with within a unit within a group so it's it's a process that's continually ever growing and especially one as we shift to looking at adversaries that are near peer similar to us 
that do have additional capabilities, how do we take those capabilities and understanding those capabilities and translate them down to operational capacities at a small unit that may be, again, out in that middle of the desert that can utilize them for some gain? You know, it's interesting, as you, as you were explaining this, I was thinking about the contrast between the probably ideal security posture of a of a business or a public facing you know organization compared to the military typically with a business these days you're worried about protection of data you're worried about uh, you know not being subject to some type of ransomware attack or malware attack whereas i'm sure in the military you're still concerned about those issues but you also have those additional concerns of, for example, you know, the uh, somebody, an adversary being able to find out exactly where you are at a, at a certain time and, may, and maybe able to, being able to reference that or cross-reference reference that from other signal that they're receiving, right? So mm -hmm. giving away activity uh, information or location information. And and I'm just thinking because, you know, when, you, when you're in a, in a, in a uh, like again, a public facing organization, a typical business, you're coached on security in terms of again preventing a certain type of attack um, and then when you talk about people in the military they're going to be subject to other types of attack and i'm, I'm even thinking that uh, you know when they're on the job uh, you know on base or on you know out doing their job there's certain types of activities that they need to be aware of um, and maybe certain safeguards that they need to adopt at the same time what about when they're off duty and they're just going off base? Um, again, there are people out there like more on the espionage front that want to figure out, want to get some type of intel, whether it's your credentials, what you're doing, your ID, in for any information they can at all. So does that, is that, I mean, because if you look at that, I don't know if one, if that makes sense, but if it does, mm -hmm. then you can't take best practices from the rest of the world and adopt them to the military always, right? I mean, you have to come up with your own. Well, thankfully, they do rhyme very tightly, and the the impact is a little bit different potentially. So as we as we go through it, one of the, the the phrases that I like to say is, you know, soldiers can go for days without food, and they can go for hours and hours without water, but they can only go minutes without information, and that's why we so heavily focus on the ability to communicate, the ability to get data and turn it into actionable information. And, you know, as we look at the the wide variety of vendors that are in this landscape of cybersecurity, oftentimes, and I'll quote Tia Hopkins here, because I think she says it very eloquently, um, and it'll be a paraphrase, but the, the way that she puts it is often, how do we get the data that we need in order to tell a story that can generate an action? And that's why I say the military cybersecurity landscape, whether it's in the field or in more of the you know, traditional corporate environment of the military in that enterprise environment versus corporate, pure corporate commercial space is often very similar. Um, now, obviously, military has the potential impact of pretty significant loss of life, which you wouldn't really see that except for probably in the healthcare space um, or maybe a couple other critical infrastructure spaces, so very small niches. But the fact that they do rhyme so tightly 
is really interesting. And I think that one one point here that's very important to know from for especially for your audience is that at any given time there are probably about 600 or so very highly trained cyber specific practitioners transitioning out of the military at any one given time and most of corporate doesn't know how to tap into that talent pool. I, I, you know, I sold the company, but I built an entire company that that was the thesis statement, right? The thesis statement was corporate America doesn't know how to identify and attract highly trained, very, very intelligent uh, cyber soldiers. And, and, and what, why but, is that? Because I, I, yeah, I'm here in Microsoft, Amazon land, and I know mm-hmm. that both of those organizations have um, well-developed programs to take, you know, uh, military members who are mm-hmm. leaving and want a job in private industry to kind of onboard them or facilitate their onboarding. Um, why, why is it particularly with cyber or is it just in general? So uh, I think there's a couple different portions of that. And the first thing I'd like to say is, you know, shout out to Microsoft and and Amazon and and some of the other companies that do have that very deep uh, attraction that are going out and recruiting specifically uh, cyber soldiers, because I think they're they're going to continue to win that battle very much. Now, as we look outside at the rest of of the landscape of potential organizations out there, whether it's a company that consumes cybersecurity or a company that takes cybersecurity to market, oftentimes there's a misperception, and I've encountered this personally myself, of, well, and I'll I'll paraphrase here. Stefan, you don't know corporate security. You don't know enterprise security because you were in the Army, and the Army uses special systems. They don't use what we use. Which was which was kind of my assumption um, until you you know explained it very eloquently that um, the systems and the processes tend to rhyme. But what you're saying is is I'm not the only one out there that has this kind of misconception about maybe your skill set isn't applicable to the enterprise world. And and I do say that's a misconception. And especially, you know, if we if we look at um, the entire the entire military workforce, it's it's very large. And will an infantryman, like I used to be before I was a, a cyber soldier, would an infantryman step in one of those roles initially? Probably not. They will need probably more training unless they've got an educational background or a previous experience. But when we look at, say, the signals cores, us and our allies, they live and breathe connectivity all day long. And then when we look at a, a deeper subset, a more narrow subset of, of cyber soldiers, that is probably one of the best places you can go to hire SANS qualified, SANS certified individuals that have been operating in Windows and Linux and and Mac that have been trying to go out and build cyber defensive tools or maybe even potentially offensive tools that we use in our, our training. But um, like we're talking people that come to you fresh with CISSP that come to you fresh with like SANS 500 level certifications that come to you fresh having more commits to GitHub security repos than potentially some of your own people. And, and 
I think that's where the misconception lies is most people, when they think of, of the military, they think of a tank rolling through a desert and they don't necessarily, <laughs> well, and we look at media, right? Like saving right. private Ryan, there's three dudes with the radio in the movie. Um, but it's, it's very much changing and both us and our allies and our adversaries are continuing to grow that cyber workforce. And if you truly want to say, defend a cybersecurity that's, uh, uh, defending the cybersecurity landscape, an embassy or a national strategic asset, the ways that you do that, they're probably running some sort of traditional operating system like Windows or Linux. And that means the devices that you use to secure them, the appliances, the frameworks, the tools, the mentality, the open source software, all of that together as a holistic environment means uh, <laughs> They are very well trained. We were very well trained. And that training is what the Army does well. They're going out to industry, they're learning, and then they're teaching themselves and they're training the trainer so that way they can do it potentially even better than industry can. So so what advice would you give for companies that are looking to recruit these type of people, okay? And two, if you're leaving the military, what advice would you give to people in terms of finding your dream job in cyber? Oh, uh, thank you. And uh, and thank you for including that second question as well, because that's a you know one that's very intimately, acutely familiar to me. And we'll come to that back to that one in just a second. The first piece is for anyone that's out there that really is interested in cyber talent coming out of the military. I'd say take a look at first the hiring our heroes programs. If you're a large enough company and you probably want to be a cybersecurity product or service company. And then if you are, a, if you're a company that consumes cybersecurity, that cybersecurity is not your primary go-to-market strategy, then um, you probably want to look at what's called the skill bridge program. And they're, they're both under the same approval titles through the, through the department of defense. Well, hiring our heroes is, is a little bit larger. It's a little bit a higher barrier to entry and it's very much cohort based which is great when you've got a wide net. But when you have a smaller net and you can't support cohorts coming through, you know, five, 10 people every quarter, and you need something that's a little bit more adaptable, then the skill bridge program is absolutely the direction to go. And uh, shout out to Adrian Tilston, a, a very good friend of mine. He's going to be open sourcing here shortly um, all of his documentation that he used to get skill bridge approval. So anybody that's listening to this, and we can, Hopefully he gets it published before the show notes come out, but uh, we could probably put that in the show notes for anybody to help spin up that program. And then this, the final piece is go physically go physically send a team out to the locations where the military has its cyber locations. So we're talking like Fort Gordon, Georgia in Augusta. We're talking um, and up in Maryland in the national capital region, San Diego and Colorado Springs. Those are all great fountains of talent where you can go to their hiring fairs and say, hey, we're looking to hire cyber people. What do you got? And then you can have some really deep, intimate, transparent conversations with the talent that's coming out and bring them in. And oh, by the way, hiring our heroes and skill bridge programs, they allow you to bring on these transitioning service members on a fellowship, an unpaid fellowship or internship. Either or, I say fellowship. Unpaid fellowship for up to six months where you can train them 
and put them in the role and see how they do. And if at the end of that, you don't actually have space anymore to hire them or you can't hire them, you can make introductions to your industry partners all day long. And you're actually not allowed to pay them for that period. This, that period, that the two, four, five, six months, that is an opportunity to help service members transition well to keep vets off the streets. And it's a that's, phenomenal program. That's an amazing program and some um, awesome advice for any company out there looking to recruit. It's funny because I, I just um, had George Gracho, who's the chief security officer at Sumo Logic, mm-hmm. on, and he was talking about the difficulty in in terms of finding qualified cyber talent. And one of his proposed solutions was looking at the military. And two, recognizing that, you know, a, a person's attitude and passion are going to be bigger drivers than what exact experience they've had. Now, that experience is important, but if the experience doesn't directly 100% line up with what you're looking for, but the person is motivated, that's the key thing because you get them on the job. And besides that, the, the the landscape for tools and technology processes is changing so rapidly that Whoever, whoever you bring in, whatever experience they have, they're still going to need to adapt that to the current landscape. So it's really important to find people that um, that have that that kind of attitude. And and he again, he was pointing to the military for one potential solution. Yeah, and I think I absolutely do think George is correct there, right? And the other thing, so I'll also talk about, uh, you know, I'll quote Rob Stevenson, the CEO over at Thrive. One of the things that he says is. Um, we build our own our own university so that way we can work with local universities to give students the training that they need that way as soon as they're done and they they graduate they've got a license to learn we can then pull them in and put them through our advanced training for our specific tool sets our specific frameworks and that is one of those ways for anybody that does take cybersecurity to market i i think that um, building out those training pipelines, working with local universities, working with the military talent as they transition is a really phenomenal way to stay relevant because finding, hiring, training, and retaining talent, especially right now in, in the industry with a great resignation, is truly key to staying alive. And mm-hmm. that talent piece is is absolutely huge. Anybody that happens to you know be on meetings with me in my home office you will see that I literally have a neon sign over my shoulder that says people because I, mm-hmm. I truly believe that people process technology or people process business outcomes is the is the way to go. And if you focus on the people, they will define the process and they will make the business outcomes happen. Makes a lot of sense. Now, let's go back to that second question in terms of, you know, for anybody who's getting ready to leave the military, what advice would you give? And I'm assuming that you're going to base some of that on upon your personal experience. I will. So I will base it on my own personal experience. I will also base it on the skill bridge programs that I led or have developed or have coached partners on developing. Um, and I'll, I'll base it on feedback from people that have gone through those problems or those programs. And usually one of the things I'll, I'm going to go straight straight to the target here for, for the audience. When you transition out of the military, the most difficult part of that transition is the change in identity because often, and this usually happens at about the five or six year mark of being in, often your own personal identity begins to get wrapped up in both the uniform and the mission. 
And when you suddenly aren't wearing the uniform anymore, that's an outward declaration that you might not be tied to a mission. And I often see people waver in their own identity throughout the transition because of the identity shift. And so first off, for anybody listening, tackle that, really get to know yourself and start extracting your identity from the uniform and the mission. But also keep in mind that transitioning in, out of the military into cybersecurity is very, very mission focused. So the people that I see have less issue with identity have gone into cybersecurity because it's mission focused. It drives the ability to protect a population, which aligns very tightly with why most people got in the military in the first place. That being said, let's get down to some of the tactics. Um, I recommend, especially for senior seniors, you know, you're at that 15, 16 year mark, 20 year mark, start talking and building relationships two to three years out, two to three years out, because you are probably very well known inside of a very small niche within your branch or your command. And you are an unknown unknown outside of the military. And so by going out and building relationships and making friends and giving back to the community and maybe publishing some articles and spending time becoming a known known, you will accelerate your transition and your landing in a much more beautiful, fulfilling way. And then really getting to understand the sales impact and not being afraid of sales. Many people inside the military are afraid of sales because they're so focused on delivery and operations and they don't have exposure to what sales looks like. So usually what I recommend there is reading a book called Selling Above and Below the Line. And I gotta tell you, senior en enlisted soldiers and officers are built for sales because it's about getting to yes and doing so in a consultative way and a, a manner that builds trust and confidence. Now, but and, when you say sales, are you, are you talking about selling yourself or in, in terms of, uh, you know, hey, I'm the right person for this job? I mean, kind of explain that. All of the above. So not not just selling yourself, which is a part of it. And I really think that comes down to telling stories and understanding what your superpower is, which I usually recommend a Myers-Briggs test for that as a starter. And then StrengthsFinder 2.0 to really round that out after you've had some time to meditate on that and reflect on on Myers-Briggs. Um, but understanding that the army almost always drives people to be a commander and they drive people to be a commander by driving them to be an operations officer. So with that cultural momentum, many senior military officers truly believe that they are designed to be an operations officer and they don't trust any sales organization because they don't understand them. So get to understand, and you might find out that you are actually potentially better at sales or sales engineering than potentially operations, which you've been trained for. And getting back to, you know, Ganothi Seotan, know thyself. Knowing yourself allows you to pick a better road that will allow you, therefore, to then be happier earlier in transition. And what are we doing if we're not trying to be happy? Yeah, 100% agree. And I know I know from your situation, I mean, because you went through some some medical issues as well. And I'm, I did. you know, 
I'm just assuming that you're not the only person who separated from the military who had to undergo medical issues while they were trying to kind of reinvent themselves. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I'll say I'll say my military transition itself was relatively challenging, but less so because I went through a much deeper identity crisis when I shifted over from the infantry into cybersecurity. And and let me explain how medical ties into that. Um, so when I when I graduated West Point, I picked the infantry because I believe that one of the most challenging roles that you can play in the world today is to be a company commander in combat. That was that was my goal. And I you know in a perfect world there wouldn't be any combat to be a company commander in, but we were in combat at the time, so I'm going to put my my hat in the ring. Um, and so I. I had aligned much, much, much of my identity in the ability to lead a diverse set of people, and the military is the largest, most diverse organization in the world. I had tied a lot of my identity in wanting to be able to pick up heavy things, run fast, and take the fight to the enemy and lead people and say, follow me, we're going to do this together. And when I got back from Afghanistan, I we knew something was wrong, thought I had maybe had a hernia, um, was it turned out we didn't was going to chiropractor and physical therapy and uh, about a year and a half after I got back we'd found out I had actually broken my back in Afghanistan not terribly but enough that I was really struggling and um, you know my, my platoon sergeant sat me down one morning after after uh, after our morning workout and he said hey sir the guys can see that you're in pain you can't hide it anymore and of course he and I you know a very intimate relationship he has to know everything. So he knew I was in pain. He knew I was going to physical therapy. And when I couldn't hide it anymore, I said, okay, I got to go, go figure this out. We got to go, go really dive deep. And when we finally got the right x-rays, the right imagery, um, we'd found out I'd actually broken it a couple times and just didn't know, just dealt with it. And then, um, you know, said, okay, well, I don't know if I can continue being in the service. And I certainly don't know if I could continue to be an infantryman. Um, so I, I chose the surgery route and I had a fusion and my surgeon, when he was going through surgery, uh, it, you know, lots of complications was in for way longer than I was supposed to be. And, uh, he had to, uh, fix a lot more than we initially anticipated. And when we, when we woke me up, I say, we, the team, when the team woke me up, um, surgeon came back in and he said, Hey, can you feel this? He was standing at the foot of my bed. And we, you know, we had a good relationship at that point. I said, okay, come on, stop joking. And he goes, no, seriously, can you feel this? And I said, no. And he said, feeling will probably come back. I just don't know when. Damn. And so then I got feeling back and then learned to walk again. And actually uh, a month and a half ago, I ran the Chicago triathlon, which I'm very excited about. Um, I finished. That was, that was, that was all I wanted to do was finish, not really perform. But um, that, resilience in the face of adversity, I think ties in very strongly into the adversity that cyber practitioners run into on a day-to-day -day basis. Like if we just look at say vulnerability management, you go through and you do a scan and you find all these vulnerabilities and then trying to go out to the owners of those systems and convince them that change needs to happen is it's a challenge by itself. And you throw a breach on top of that and now Cyber practitioners get punched in the face all day long and being able to get back up and having that ever enthusiastic 
view of the world while still balancing the idea that there's somebody constantly trying to get me is where I think a lot of practitioners um, do get a little bit of burnout because how can we possibly see the world as both good and bad at the same time uh, and, and hold both of those that the yin and yang internally um, without the ability to continue to stand back up. So I, it's a, it's a road that I, I don't want anybody else to walk of, you know, waking up and not being able to, to feel your legs. But uh, I would say that if, if there was a population that could get back up after that and do so very well, I would say it's, it's cybersecurity practitioners are probably at the top of that list. Wow. Well, that's a, that's an amazing story and, and, you know, hats off to you for going through that and, um, and then being able to pivot into something that, you know, that you really care about. I, I just can't imagine the, you know, the one, the, the, the pain that you had to go through and, you know, these days you see so many people who have the, that type of pain, they, you know, they get hooked on the pain meds um, and, and then you were able to go ahead and get surgery and then to lose feeling. I mean, <laughs> I just can't can't imagine. So, um, you know, kudos to you for for go, going through that. Uh, but but I'm sure you're not the only one in the military that comes out with with different injuries and it has to reinvent themselves. And so I think that's uh, inspirational for anybody who's listening who's going through something similar. Let me let me ask you though. Um, yeah. You know, at at what point um, did you did you make a decision? Hey, I you know what? It's time for me to to leave the military and um and 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 do something in in private industry. Well, there was a there was a new memorandum that came out that said uh, effectively that anyone that has an in injury or surgery or uh, outcomes similar to mine was going to have to go through a, a medical review annually, and those reviews can take almost up to a year, and that means that the amount of uncertainty I was going to have to put my family through on a year yearly basis was going to be, I felt, um, abnormally high. And I, I can assume as much uncertainty in my own personal life as, as required, you know, I walking through minefields, I, I think, you know, many of us have shown that, but when, when that uncertainty parlays into, not being able to give real true answers about the future to my family. Um, that was, that was a big change for me. So when that policy came out, you know, I said, okay, why don't we, why don't we just start that now, start this process, let's do a medical evaluation and I will put that decision into the process, into the, the, the hands that, that run the process and we'll see what happens. And if, if my time to exit is now, then so be it, we'll figure out a plan. And um, thankfully at that point, I'd been uh, working on my MBA and I kind of had this idea that I wanted to start a veteran focused recruiting company. And so thankfully I was able to convince many of my MBA classmates whenever we had projects to use my concept as a case study. So I, I like to say that I, I walked away from my MBA $100,000 in free consulting ahead of where I should have been at, uh, after paying for an MBA. That's, that's amazing. And I, again, you know, you, you continue to reinvent yourself uh, because after, you know, you um, launched and built and then sold your recruiting business, um, you've gone on to a couple other positions as well, right? I, I have, yeah. So I built this company and then uh, 
it it had been cash flow positive and it was really working quite well. And then um, uh, through through a mutual friend, I was introduced to somebody in the uh, IT services and security brokerage space, and and we sat down one day and uh, we came up with this idea that if we merged forces, it could work out very very well. Um, with my experience in you know building security programs and and trying to de- define the future of security and then getting a wide variety of stakeholders yes uh, and then also the recruiting space is very similar to the brokering space it's it's very much i know a guy that can solve what you need to solve so uh we we went through acquisition they bought my company and i got to learn this this space very very well and i and i gotta say i knew about resellers for a long time I did not know that this brokerage space existed, this non-direct, non-VAR space. And when I fell into it through this acquisition, I really fell in love with the space because this space specifically, being able to come in to clients and understand what their needs are and not just throw a product at them or not just throw a single solution at them, but say, hey, I think that in your space, there are probably a hundred vendors that say they can do what you can do. There's probably a dozen that can actually do it well that fit your strategic direction. And of those, I can access eight. Here's, I think, two vendors that you might want to talk with. And then the client doesn't have to pay me for any of that because I'm compensated by whomever they go out and purchase through traditional brokerage space. And that opportunity allows me to be confident in what I'm bringing to the table. And it allows me to bring the right thing at the right time for the right partner instead of just the thing that I have. And uh, I believe that allows me and other brokers all across the country to do right by their clients. And learning this space and learning the the space's challenges that made me think, okay, well, well, there are some challenges in this space. So how can I go solve those challenges? And the way that many of these brokers access the vendors is through a distribution tier. And I said, okay, well, then I think if I, I can solve those problems, and this could be my ego talking, but if, if I think I can solve those problems and go bring in more vendors and the right vendors, so that way we can get, again, do right by our clients at the distribution tier, then I think we can truly win in this space. And, and my goal here is you know, mission-focused, help, help our clients be there when they, they need us. And so um, I went to Avant Communications and I said, hey, let me build this for you. You already have a good start, but let me build the tools and the teams and go out and bring in the right vendors to really enable brokerages all over the country, all over the world, to have a deeper portfolio and to truly, again, help their clients in those acute pain points and those acute times of need when they are under disaster, and then ideally help them prevent those disasters by bringing in the right consultants, the right vendors, the the right managed services, and sometimes even the right products. And Mark, the really cool part here, I'll go back to this again, is the clients don't pay us to do this. The vendors do. And when we go and say, bring in one of those vendors, then the vendor, their marketing team effectively failed to find find this opportunity 
So the broker gets what the marketing team would have won internally. So very, 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 very rarely do we see a price increase. And most times what we actually see is a price decrease because those brokers can also pit multiple vendors against each other to really drive that price down. Ipso facto, then in order to go help the company secure themselves, meet their own business objectives and go out and capture new logos because they've got the security in place that allow them to go to market and win. So it sounds like that your customers or the or the the organizations who are buying the services they're kind of outsourcing a part of the procurement process to you they're like you know what you've got a relationship with all these different organizations figure out what organization is the best fit in terms of their offering their pricing etc um, and then come back to us and um, and the best part is is they're not paying you for it because you're going to get your your compensation from the actual vendor let me ask you then, um, can you could you maybe walk us through a couple uh, use cases or real life scenarios? Because when we talk about things like vendors and distributors and 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 managed services, that's a lot of jargon. But maybe mm-hmm. if you could walk us through a specific yet anonymized kind of uh, example of how you've helped an organization with either a specific tool, technology, or service. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and 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 I will I will keep it anonymized both obviously on the client side because what do we have at this industry other than our reputation and confidentiality, but I will also keep it anonymized on the vendor side as well because um, you've had many of my partners on your podcast, and so um, I don't want to shift the the focus between you know the partners that were in your podcast and the ones that weren't weren't. I my goal is to be as agnostic as possible and solve solve the need. So I'll I'll bring an example of um, literally the call that I had right before this, right before you and I talked, uh, began talking today. And um, this particular client happens to be very well entrenched in Microsoft Sentinel. So they've purchased E5 licensing. They're an international law firm. They've got multiple separate separate business units. They've got multiple compliance frameworks that, that they operate under. Um, They've got multiple domains. They're they're halfway through their cloud journey, so they've got um, Active Directory syncing from on-prem to the cloud for for a few different regions. They've got development networks that they don't have much visibility into. It's it's very complex, and they're organizationally they're struggling to get visibility and really assure that their controls are there. Get visibility to know that they they have a way forward. That if someone goes through and deploys and unsecure container that they have an unsecured container or if there's someone was triaging something and they dropped down um, permissions or maybe they disabled EDR on a, on, a, on a box but they forgot as they unwound to turn that back on before they left those are all issues that affect their their security landscape so um, they're going through three or four different compliance driven initiatives right now ISO 27,000, they've got uh, SOC 2 that they're working on, they've got um, some other specific EU compliance frameworks, all these different pieces that are moving one time. And the question then became to us is, what do we do next? How do we get a grasp on this? How do we get more visibility? And if we're tied so tightly into Sentinel, as we go look out across all of the vendors that are out there, there's some amazing vendors, some managed services vendors, some um, controls assurance vendors that are on different tech stacks. Can you help us narrow the, the options down to just 
you know, E5, Sentinel, and a few other pieces that we have. And so the, the answer was yes, absolutely we can. And as I looked at it, there's, there's really three to four vendors in our portfolio that can do exactly what they need. And only two of those vendors have the international presence that they needed. So um, they came to us through, a, through an, um, an independent sales consultant and she brought me in and some of our team to have the discussions at the you know architecture program layer. And then we kind of do that solutions architecture for the for this the vendor that could come in. And then um, you know they'll do NDAs and they'll take uh, maybe a proof of value. They'll build out a part of their roadmap into this to scale out a deployment. And it's uh, it's a lot of fun because in the beginning of those calls, you know. 45 minute hour long calls, you often start off with, you know, kind of closed off body position and you can see that they're, they have a lot of questions. And by the end of it, you see them leaning forward and smiling and excited about moving ahead, uh, moving ahead and having a clear vision for the future. And then it's just figuring out which vendor is the right one for them right now. Mm -hmm. It makes a lot of sense. And it's funny as you walked us through that, um, I've, I've seen every step of that process play out multiple times. Uh, especially the 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 part at the beginning, or excuse me, at the end where you where you talked about the beginning, where the initial conversations, uh, you know, typically people are a little bit standoffish, reserved, and and they want to see, you know, are you really there to help, um, or are you there to sell them your widget? And I think your approach, where you know you don't have your own widget, you have a portfolio of services to offer, mm -hmm. it puts you in a great position. Hey, um, we're, we're running up. I'm surprised. I just looked at We're running up close to an hour here. Here, um, I kind of want to wrap this up, but then we'll, yeah. we'll arrange a time to get you back on here and talk about some more things uh, sometime in the future. But let's just switch tracks completely. Let's look at the world that you know, you know that we're in right now and today. We've got all this crazy stuff going on with Russia, Ukraine. Uh, we've got crazy stuff going on in Iran and the Middle East, um, and we have some interesting stuff going out in our own country here. Uh, so. What is your biggest concern for most organizations right now? What should they be looking at? That That is a phenomenal question. It, it's a really good question. And I mean, we could talk about IAM, IAM and PAM. We could talk about um, the impact of, of different cryptos, whether it's cryptocurrency or anything else on the market. But I think those are all kind of shiny objects. And if I were to break it up, you know, truly, truly break it up and figure out what is the most important thing for people to do right now. And I, I'll be honest here, I think it's the non-sexy stuff. Patch management, doing role-based access control, really leveraging your identity solutions and getting a good governance around your identity. So that way we know who has access to what, when, ha knowing who had access to what, when, and then making sure our own attack surface is generally small. If we can do just those things and then continue to train our users, we, we are, as an industry, going to continue to move forward. The problem is most people are, are trying to keep the lights on and the grass green, which are monumental tasks, which usually means moving ahead and going from reactive to proactive to uh, the ability to project and, and be adaptive in the future is really challenging. And that's where we see often the amount of churn in organizations, people churn, is really a challenge that prevents being able to get too adaptive. And uh, that's why I think 
um, many organizations right now are choosing to focus on what they do best and bringing in partners. And this is a very self-fulfilling, of course, but I see it all the time, whether I'm involved or not, focusing on what the organization does best. So if you are a law firm, if you are a, uh, a real estate agency, if you are a biotech firm, using your people to do exactly what your mission of your company is, and then let everything else take that to market and effectively outsource those functions, not necessarily outsource those people. So that way you can focus on going to market and winning and let somebody else then do the patch management. Let somebody else do all of your identity and access management and those fundamentals that we've been reading about for 25, 30 years that are still just a challenge to do. Yeah, I think it's some great advice. Obviously, everybody focus on the basics. You know, if you get the basics right, you've eliminated 90% of your attack surface or you've reduced it anyway. Um, do some scenario planning, have some some great processes in place. I would like to have, and, and I think that's how we can maybe um, kind of kick off our follow-up conversation. I'd like to kind of walk, have you walk us through the best practices or whatever heuristic you use to determine when do you in-source or hire FTEs for different positions versus outsourcing. And I'm sure that ties into organizational size, the type of role, the, you know, a variety of factors. But I'm sure that you, you know, you've got some great guidance in terms of how organizations um, can do that. But let's save that for yeah. um, the, the next conversation. Um, I, I got to say, you've um, you've shared a tremendous amount of information with us today. Um, obviously, you've got a, a, a ton of knowledge. So I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. And um, I hope to cross paths with you in person one day soon. Mark, I'm looking forward to it. You know, both shaking hands, you know, maybe having maybe having a beverage together. And, uh, you know, I really hope that this conversation moves the needle for your clients or for your for your audience. And, you know, the one thing that I'd like to say is my superpower is being here to help. And I am here to help. I love this industry. I love what we do. I love the mission. And, uh, you know, let, let's keep going out in the future and helping our clients. Thanks, Devin. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.